Pray with me. Father, we, uh, we do have that prayer in our hearts right now, that you would open our eyes, and the eyes of our heart, that we might know you, understand you, and in that way, see you. But Lord, i got to believe that there's not one person here this morning, whether they are a seeker or a veteran believer, who doesn't have some desire deep down to know you and to know you in a deeper way. And so, fathers, we look to your word now, which we believe through the eyes of faith is your truth to us. God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and our minds. May we understand it rightly, and Lord, may we be equipped for the days ahead. Days ahead, And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, here's one thing I know is true, and that is that we all run into people who claim to know certain things about God and the spiritual realm, and they share those things with us. And then when they do so, we wonder if what they're saying is really true. I mean, this happens to us almost weekly. We might be watching Oprah or an interview on CNN or reading the New York Times latest best-selling book on how to succeed in life or we might be talking to a friend at work and they, they, they mention Jesus and the Bible. They just throw something in on a spiritual or metaphysical level and we wonder if what they're saying is true or not. Or, or we're watching a Christian preacher on TV or listening to a Christian preacher on the radio who is adamant about some aspect of God and the spiritual realm, things that maybe we haven't heard before but sound okay, and we wonder, is what he or she is saying true? I mean, am I missing something? Or we find ourselves at work or school, and -and so-and-so says that they believe this or that about God, something in which they say God does this when we do that, or he responds this way when we go that way, and we ask ourselves, is that really how God works? I mean, is that the way he is? I mean, think about it, folks. Every week in our pluralistic, spiritually obsessed culture, we're peppered, if not bombarded, with a myriad of competing truth claims about God and the spiritual realm. And many times they are sprinkled with biblical passages and even the name of Jesus at times. And if we're honest with ourselves, it can get kind of confusing at times over what is true and not true, especially when they bring Jesus and the Bible into it. And some of you say, well, I guess if it's just a Christian talking and they're using the Bible, then I believe them. But then I would say to you, but what if they're wrong? I mean, what if they're having a bad spiritual hair day or they believe in something radically different about Jesus than you do or they interpret the Bible differently than you do? Then what? How do you know at the end of the day if what somebody is saying is true or not, especially as we talk about spirituality? And even if you have a good time or find it easy on a spiritual level to discern truth from falsehood, how do you help the many, many other people that I know exist in culture and even in this church who are well-meaning followers of Christ but are having trouble navigating the headwaters of our 21st century culture that's interested in spiritual things but all over the map when it comes to understanding God and His economy? How do you navigate truth and non-truth in a culture like ours? It's a good question to ask. And one of the reasons that it's a good question to ask is because there's nothing new under the sun. And every culture before ours, though very different in nature, have had to wrestle with the same thing. They've had to wrestle with how to navigate truth and untruth in this fallen world in which obviously everybody is not a follower of God, especially as he's revealed himself to, to us in Christ. And John... The book we're studying this uh, summer here at Scottsdale Bible, 1 John, is writing exactly to this issue as we enter into chapter 4 right now in our look in 1 John. 
Because you see, as we established in the very first week of this series, John's culture in Ephesus at that time was not very too dissimilar from our culture today. In other words, he had a very secular culture that he lived in, but it was also very religious. It was very spiritually thirsty. And so they were saying a lot of things about God, but not all of them were obviously true about God because Ephesus was very secular, very modern back then. And so they had a driving need as followers of Christ back then to walk wisely, to walk with discernment, if you will, if they were ever going to get the most out of their walk with God. And that's the main point that John shares with us as we turn the page into chapter 4 this week. Look up here on the screen, and that's simply this. And this is our main point today, and that is that in times of increased cultural interest, in and with spirituality, it is vitally important for followers of Jesus to discern both what and who is true and not true. I know that's a mouthful. I could find no other easier way to say it, but this is where he's taken us this morning. And I'll repeat it, and that is that in times of increased cultural interest, in and with spirituality, which was the culture in John days, days back then, and it's the culture in our day today, it is vitally important for followers of Christ to be discerning when it comes to truth and non-truth. And so in writing to a group of Christ followers, very much like us, look at what John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Look up here on the screen. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, if you're tracking with this at all, the primary question that you should be asking yourself right now is what does he mean here by spirits? He's telling us to test the spirits. And so what does he mean by that word spirit here? I mean, in the next five verses of 1 John chapter 4 here, he's going to mention this word spirit seven times. And so it's kind of an important concept for you and I to understand. What does he mean by spirit and to test the spirits? And what you need to know is that there's no easy answer to this, that theologians have wrestled with this for years. Some argue that it simply means a spiritual principle or thought. They point out that John is talking about false teaching in this letter here, and so they posit that spirit here simply means a truth claim in the form of a principle that could be either right or wrong, that spirit means principle. Others, however, argue that John is no, not talking about a, a principle or a truth, but he's talking about an individual or a person here. That spirit here refers to a person's spirit, and we're to test whether a person's spirit is one of truthhood or falsehood. They point out that, that John here uses words like they and them and us in light of his discussion on spirit. And so it's people that he's referring to when he says to test the spirits here. And yet still others argue that, no, this is more of a spiritual origin of spirit here, that John is referring to heavenly spirits or demonic spirits who communicate truth or falsehood to our spirit. They point out the fact that this word is used that way in other parts of the Bible, and indeed it is. And so John is using it this way to refer to spiritual beings when it talks about spirit. And so these are our options before us, folks. It could be a principle, a person, or even direct spiritual influence that John is talking about here. So which is it? I, I kind of like how I. Howard Marshall solves this issue for us. I. Howard Marshall is probably one of the foremost experts on the book of 1 John alive today, and he suggests that maybe it's all three that John is referring to here. Maybe it's all three. He simply points out that indeed human beings are the ones being talked about here, that John is concerned about false teachers in the church who are leading people astray. 
And yet they are human beings who have been inspired by a spirit. In other words, they claim to have discovered spiritual truth by tapping into some sort of divine wisdom. And from this, they now have a resulting principle or truth that they are teaching other people around them. And these people have to be discerning on whether this is true or not. And I think Marshall's on to something here. I think when you understand it this way, this is exactly what John is talking about. He's talking about people who have claimed to found spiritual truth, whether we know they did or not, we'll discern in a minute here, and now they're sharing this truth with other people in principle form. And John is saying that this kind of stuff happens all the time around you in a secular, runaway culture, and so be discerning. Test the spirits. It's people, principles, and spiritual influence all wrapped up into one. And all I know is that when I understand the passage this way and then start to apply the next five verses, which we'll look at here in a minute this way, it seems to make sense. That I, just like you, live in a world today in which I'm bombarded every day with this type of thing by, by a person who claims to have spiritual truth and is teaching it. And I'm wondering, is that really true or not? I remember a few years ago I was uh, watching a, a very popular PBS special uh, by a guy named Dr. Wayne Dyer, Dyer called The Power of Intention. I don't know if you guys ever watch PBS or not, but many times PBS goes on these fundraising gigs where they show you a, a really scintillating teacher teaching certain things about life, whether it be finances or relationships or even spirituality. And during this time when they had Wayne Dyer on teaching the power of intention, they single-handedly raised over $70 million for PBS while it was airing, which told me that a lot of people were watching this and buying into it. And during this special, Dyer shares what he calls the principle of intention, which in his own words, and I quote, is this. It's the power to manifest, to create, to live a life of unlimited abundance, and to attract into your life the right people at the right moments. It's the power of intention. And in one sense you go, well, that's kind of benign, and it seems like sort of maybe modern-day pop psychology. That's not too bad. But then he went on to tie it into the spiritual realm. In other words, as he explained this principle of intentionality anymore, and when he answered the question of where he got this, listen to what he says. He says, and I quote, it's a God realization. A God realization is a place where you get to in your heart and your mind, and you ask yourself, are these things in harmony with the source that I originated from, which Dyer then calls the energy or life force in you that he labels God. And so he's saying you have this power of intentionality in you that comes from the Almighty, that comes from God, and if you can tap into this power, it's going to help you succeed and find peace and joy and contentment in life. And so please just pause right here. We're going to continue on with him in just a little bit here. But simply notice that, that Dyer fits the bill of a spirit that we need to test here. He's a human being living here in the 21st century in our Western world. He claims to have had a God realization, a spiritual truth that has come to him about life and God. And this has resulted in a principle that he now shares called the power of intention. This is exactly, folks, what John is talking about. Whether you get it on PBS or CNN or whether you get it watching a TV preacher, even your denominational background, we're bombarded with truths about who God is, people usually sharing these things, and we're to test these things. We're not to just buy into everything that we hear, we're to challenge it, we're to push back a little, we're to put it through the ringer and see if it drips anything true about God. John is saying that in a world and culture that is dabbling in all kinds of spiritual options and choices, 
that as a follower of the resurrected Jesus, test them and see if they pass the muster of something that really and truly has come from God. And so if you're tracking with this at all, the question that we have to answer at this point is how? I mean, how do we test and discern then what is true? And though there are many things that the Bible tells us on how to do this, John goes on to share with us two things here. Two doors, if you will, two entryways that any teacher or teaching must pass through in order to get into the mind and heart of the follower of Jesus Christ. And both doors ask a question that is looking for a particular answer. And so these become two things that you and I can ask on a regular basis, day in and day out, as we confront spiritual truth to see whether it's something that we are going to allow to become a part of our truths about God. And here's door number one, and that is they have to answer adequately who is Jesus and what has he done. That's what John's going to tell us. They have to answer adequately who is Jesus and what has he done. And so look at how John goes on to say this to us in verses 2 and 3 as we read on in chapter 4. He says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and is now, already, or now is in the world already. So focus on that little phrase in verse 2 there that I highlighted for you on the screen behind me when it says, confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And this is door number one for any spiritual truth worthy of being considered, worthy of even being entertained as true about God. It must stem and honor from a realization that indeed Jesus was who he said he was, namely the Son of God come into this world to do something that we couldn't do for ourselves. You see, folks, when John uses that little phrase, confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, this is his trademark poetic way of describing what the rest of the New Testament will bear witness to, namely that Jesus was not just some great man with some good spiritual teaching and a nice righteous life, but that he was God Almighty, come in the form of a human being to both show us the way as well as become the way through his death on a cross for our sins so that we might know God. In other words, John is telling us that Jesus is much more than most people think. He's not just some good spiritual teacher like Gandhi, but he's God. He is God come to us so that we might know God. And the New Testament takes this truth so seriously that they even go so far as to say that Jesus, in these latter days that we are living in, is actually the primary way that God has chosen to speak to you and me. In and through his life, his gospels, and now his spirit who lives in us. And so now you might see that if we're not honoring who Jesus is, then we don't stand a great chance of really understanding and knowing God on a deep level. Now listen to how Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 would say this to us. It would say, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son." whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Do you see? The Bible affirms over and over again that Jesus is not only the way to God, but he's also the way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us, really the primary way. 
And so when people ask me, as they so often do, why Jesus? I mean, why do Christians make such a big deal of Jesus, Jamie, as the, as the only way to God? What I share with them is two things. Is that one, it's because what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that it's the only way to God. But then secondly, is that it makes sense that God, who was separated from sinful humanity, wanted to choose how to communicate to us. And though he does communicate in numerous ways, the primary way he chose to do it is in and through his son, Jesus Christ. He is the mouthpiece. He is the way to God. In short, the reason that Jesus is the only way to God is because he's the primary way that God has chosen to reveal himself to us, like personally and up close. And he's the only way that God has provided a pathway to forgiveness and salvation from our sins to draw us to God. And so now you might understand why John is saying what he's saying. He's saying that because Jesus is the revelation of God, the Word become flesh, the way God has chosen to communicate himself, that any spirit, whether it be a principal or a person or whatever, that wants to enter into the arena of declaring his truth must do so through door number one. Namely, a recognition and a deeply held belief that indeed Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world. And any other door, he is saying, is not only suspect, but with deference and, and respect to anybody who cares enough about spiritual things to make a spiritual truth claim, John says, I'm sorry. Anything stemming short or falling short of God's already declared word made true to us in Jesus, cannot say anything eternally meaningful about who God is. That we know God when we see Jesus. And so any truth claim needs to honor who Jesus is. You know, this is actually eminently practical for each of us on a day-in and day-out level. I know some of you right now are almost bored to tears with this theology lesson. And you're thinking to yourselves, well, how's this going to apply Monday through Saturday? But I'm telling you, it really does. And so a few years back when I was watching this Wayne Dyer special on PBS, at one point he got around to Jesus. And he talked about Jesus and Gandhi and Confucius and many other Eastern religious teachers. And he tended to put them all on the same playing field, actually with an emphasis more on some of the Eastern religious teachers. And so when it came to, to finding who God is and how he communicated himself, listen to what he said, and I quote, he said, the, the moment is all there is now, all there is now, that's what God is too. God is only now. So no historical incarnation, no God made flesh in Jesus, no revelation in and through the Son of God, Jesus. And so if you're discerning at all with what that guy just did with Jesus, immediately red flags should be going up left and right. Immediately you should be thinking to yourself, well, he just handled Jesus and he didn't handle him at all in the way that God has revealed himself historically to us. And so what he's about to say next, I'll listen to, I'll entertain because I'm going to be respectful, but I'm going to be suspect about, I'm going to be discerning about, I'm going to walk wisely. And that's the point, folks. It doesn't mean that everything that Dyer says is incorrect. I mean, when he talks about physics or quantum mechanics or even the fact that intentionality can get things done, there's probably some truth in what he's saying. That's just good common sense. But when he and many others cross the line into talking about metaphysics, transcendence, and spiritual truth, which he and others do a lot, now we need to test the spirits. Maybe look at it this way. Now they've come into our world. 
Now they've come into the world of the Bible, the world in which people are talking about spiritual truth, and what John is saying is test this stuff. Don't be a wimp when it comes to these things. Test them. And the first test that you can give them is to ask them, what do they think of Jesus, God's main revelation of who God is? And please know, this doesn't mean that we need to be, need to be disrespectful or that we need to shut somebody out. It simply means that it's okay to be discerning and even at times to ask questions, probing questions, and spar on a spiritual truth level. That's not a bad thing to do. You know who my hero is on this level in our modern-day world is an apologist by the name of Ravi Zacharias. Ravi is an Indian-born apologist who's written some awesome books defending the Christian faith and sharing his story, and he travels around the world meeting with all kinds of people from heads of state to academicians to just normal everyday people talking to them about the Christian truth claim. And one of the phrases that Zacharias has coined that I've kind of latched on to is what he calls the inclusivity of people versus the exclusivity of truth. I kind of like that, the inclusivity of people versus the exclusivity of truth. And what he simply means by that is that you and I as followers of Jesus, as we learned last week, need to be inclusive of everybody we meet. That's just the Jesus way. We are loving, we are kind, we are embracing, we are listening, we are empathetic, we are compassionate, we are grace-filled. If we're not, then John says you can't really call yourself a follower of Christ. It's the inclusivity of people. But, our, but Zacharias argues that that's different, however, from the exclusivity of truth. In other words, that might be on a personal level, but when it comes to a truth level, it's either wrong or right. It's either true or untrue, and not everything can be true. And so though you can be inclusive of a person, it doesn't mean that you need to buy into everything that they teach. Do you see the difference there? And in our multicultural, very tolerant world, sometimes people don't see that. They have trouble with that. And it gets them in trouble, even as Christians. Because we think that being inclusive of people means that we need to be inclusive of everything they believe. And that's just not true. In fact, maybe look at it this way. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is help people see that what they believe might not be true and vice versa. I sometimes think it takes more love to do that than it does to just say, ah, you're in falsehood, but I really don't care enough or really don't want to get into it with you, so I'm just going to be inclusive of everything you believe. Uh, we wouldn't do that with our kids. Why would we do that with people around us? No, I think it's okay to spar over these issues. Because positively speaking, when someone does step through door number one, and assert a truth claim under the banner of Jesus as the incarnate Son of God, notice the result of this, and that is simply this, that that means that the person or the teaching is from God, meaning indwelt and inspired by God, and so we should listen closely and consider what they say. Look at how John goes on to say this in verses 2 and 4 of our text before us. He says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is, now get this, from God. And then in speaking directly to believers in Christ, he says in verse 4, you are from God. And just so we're clear, when he says they're from God in both verses 2 and 4, what John simply means is that they have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit living in them through their faith in Christ. And so they're now in the ring to be able to discern and understand his truth as he has revealed it to us in his word. To use Jesus' language and metaphor, they have ears to hear and eyes to see. 
In other words, he's saying that if somebody does honor Jesus for who he really is, you can invite them then into the foyer of your mind, the foyer of your heart, because now you want to have a dialogue with them about what spiritual truth might be because they know Jesus and they know how God has revealed himself to us. And yet, please understand this, folks. I I don't think what this does mean, however, is that everything that that person says or teaches is true because there's going to be some other doors that they need to pass through. It's just that now that they are indwelt by him and his Holy Spirit, they're able to follow and understand his truth. And so what they might be, what they're saying just might be true. Again, to use the analogy of doors, they're now in your foyer, but you haven't yet invited them into your den or your living room. And that's going to take some other doors for them to walk through. But they're in the ring with you. Why? Because they understand the same Jesus that you follow, the same Jesus that has been revealed in history, the same Jesus that God has chosen to reveal himself through. But you're just through the first door. And so notice with me a second door that John gives us so that we may walk wisely, walk in a discerning kind of way. And that is that we then ask the question, once they've answered who Jesus is, what does the Bible say and teach? This is door number two. What does the Bible say and teach? And so this is interesting, folks. Look at the way that John wraps up this section here in verse 6. This is kind of fascinating. He says, we, focus on that little word, we, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so don't miss what he's saying there. He's saying by a certain process here, we're going to know truth and error. And what is that process? that you need to listen to us. And he says it there twice, that, that we are from God. And the thing that you and I need to wrestle with right now is what does he mean by we and us, right? When he refers to we and us, who's he talking about? Some people at first reading would say, well, obviously he's referring to us, the church. So that, you know, what we say about God and we need to listen to each other and find unity in what we say about God, that we and us refers to the church. The only problem with that interpretation there is it doesn't honor the verse before this, verse 5, in which he contrasts the we and us to the they. And if you look at verse 5, the they are the false teachers of his day. In other words, just a small group of people who are creating waves by teaching some things that weren't true. That was the they. And so what most Bible experts argue is that when he says us here in verse 6, he's not referring to the whole church. Get this, he's referring to the apostles. He is referring to the divinely inspired men of the first century who were receiving the word of God that they would eventually write down in the New Testament here, that the we and the us there are those who have been receivers of God's divine revelation that would eventually become the Holy Scripture. And sure enough, we know from our history sources at that time that right when John was writing in about 90 AD here, the church was just starting to rightly view Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the writers of the Gospels, Paul as the writer of his letters, John as the writer of his letters, Peter as the writer of his letters, and that these things were very quickly becoming on par with the Old Testament. That Jesus told us in John 16 that he was going to guide these guys into all truth. And sure enough, the Holy Spirit did guide them into all truth, and they wrote it down. Paul talks about the fact that he had direct revelation from God on what to write down. And so it's not by accident that you and I have a New Testament that is from the us here, the we in 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. 
And what John is saying is that if you want to discern truth from error, if you want to walk wisely in your culture, listen to this book. Listen to us. Listen to the things that God has revealed. And that if you want to be discerning in your spiritual walk, whether it's through watching Dr. Phil or TBN or reading the latest spiritual bestseller or even talking to a friend at work, you're going to be discerning when you understand and rightly divide this word of truth. That was a great phrase that the Reformers coined about four or 500 years ago. They talked about rightly dividing the word of truth. That you and I can walk discerning in whatever runaway culture we find ourselves in when we learn to read and understand this book and what God has revealed. And I think that's what John is affirming here. And therein lies the key, folks. Now, don't miss this. And that is that it is only when we rightly divide the word of truth, when we correctly interpret and understand the Bible, that we can have confidence in discerning truth from error. But this is where a lot of people get stuck. Because they say to me, and I hear this all the time throughout the week, they say, well, Jamie, there's like lots of different interpretations of the Bible. How do we know which one is correct? And would it surprise you to know that I have an answer to that? Would it surprise you to know that I can help you in understanding how to interpret the Bible in such a way that I think you're going to figure out fairly easily what it's saying? Give me another click here, guys. It's through this way. For 2,000 years now, Orthodox, conservative Bible teachers have approached the Bible with what we call a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic. And you're saying, what's that? It's simply this. It's simply the fact that we honor what the Bible says as literally true within the history or genre that it was written in. In other words, if it's history, you read it as history. If it's poetry, you read it as poetry. If it's straight didactic teaching like you get in Paul, you read it as straight didactic teaching like you get from Paul. If it's a parable, you read it as a parable. So you honor it within the historical grammatical setting that it was written in, but always taking the plain literal meaning. Give me a head nod that we get what I'm talking about there. In other words, I'll talk about this more in a minute, but there's not some hidden message in it like the Da Vinci Code or something like that that you're searching for. No, the Bible was written in plain Hebrew, plain everyday Greek, now translated into English. And so you and I can read it using a literal, historical, grammatical approach, honoring the laws of grammar, honoring the historical setting that it was written in, and then taking it at face value. And it doesn't mean that we ignore genre. If it's poetry, we read it as poetry. If it's a metaphor, we see it as a metaphor. When Jesus says, I am the gate and the sheep need to walk through me, we don't literally think of Jesus as a wrought iron gate. We know he's using a metaphor there. When he says, I'm like a mother hen that wants to gather my chicks, we don't see Jesus as a bird. We honor the fact that he's using a metaphor there. But any time that the context does not demand a metaphor, and I don't miss this, we read it in its plain, literal understanding. You do that. And not only will you understand the Bible, but you will stay, as Jesus warned us, on the straight and narrow. You really will. Now, let me give you a very simple example of how this works, and I think you'll get it. John 3.16 is a passage that we teach our kids. John 3.16 is not hard to understand. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What does that mean? Well, taken at face value, it means God loves you that he loves you and he cares about you, that everybody in this world, all humanity, is within the realm of his love and his grace. But it also assumes there, and the rest of the Bible fills us in, that there's a sin problem. 
That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Why did he give his son? Because we're separated from him. There's a sin problem that separates us from God. Other scriptures talk about that. And that's why Jesus came, to be the penalty, to be the one who bore our sin on his cross. But it doesn't stop there. That if you believe, if you believe with all your heart and all of your mind, and trust in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life, which assumes that this life is not all there is, but that there is more. Now add all that up, folks, just in one simple verse that you and I teach our kids, what did we just parse out? We just parsed out the love of God. We just parsed out that there's eternal life. We just parsed out why and how Jesus came. But we didn't have to discover any hidden meaning here. We just took it plainly within the literal, historical, grammatical setting in which it was written. And if people would always do that with the Bible, I'm telling you, we would not have as much trouble as we do in understanding and even agreeing on what it's saying. You know what gets us in trouble today? I see this happen all the time. TV preachers do it, but to be fair, lots of people do this. And that is, you've heard people do this. They'll say, well, the Bible says this, but what it really means is, how many times have you ever heard somebody say that? Right? The Bible says this, but what it really means is, I'm telling you, every time somebody does that, I'm going, warning, 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 danger Will Robinson. Which I know some of you don't get that. It's a long show. Long time ago. But danger Will Robinson, I, I think of that. I think, my gosh, that, that is a dangerous thing when somebody says that. Because when somebody says, the Bible says this, but what it really means is, I want to scream back, no, what it really means is what it says. Amen? I mean, why would you try to find some hidden meaning in it? What it's saying is what it's saying. This isn't the Da Vinci Code for crying out loud. This is God who loves you and has communicated to you in clear language who he is and what he is about. And this isn't to say that there aren't some difficult things in the scriptures to understand. There are. But there's no hidden meaning in them. They're just tough concepts. Things like election versus free will. That's a tough concept. But there's no hidden meaning in it. It's in plain language what God says. It's just hard for us to get our minds and hearts around it. But most of the scriptures aren't that way. Most of the scriptures tell us very, very clearly what God has said and what he wants from us. I love how Mark Twain said it years ago. He says, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the part that I do understand that bother me. And I think if all of us are honest with ourselves, we can relate to that, right? We got enough trouble just living out what we know to be true, let alone trying to argue over what we don't know. And the reality is, is that if you and I would just take a plain reading of the Bible, again, within the historical grammatical setting it was written in, I'm telling you, we're going to be just fine on staying on the straight and the narrow. Because here's the result of passing through door number two. And that is that once somebody does that, whether it's a teaching or a teacher that you're dealing with, then you can have confidence that that particular teaching is actually from and of God, and you can trust both its source and its content. Isn't that so cool? In other words, if what is being taught or communicated is indeed what God's Word says, and you discern that that's the case, then you can trust that it is what God is saying, and now you can invite that truth into the living room or the den of your heart. And so here's the great challenge before you and I. To the degree that we know His Word, to the degree that we understand this book 
and can carry it around in our hearts and our heads Monday through Saturday is to the degree that we will walk wisely. But by converse, to the degree that you don't know this book, to the degree that you only rely on a Sunday sermon or your childhood stories from Sunday school, is to the degree that you won't walk wisely, you won't walk in a discerning manner, and you're going to be an accident waiting to happen. I think that's where the teaching out of here in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1-6 through 6, leaves us. It's a clarion call, it's a great challenge to you and I to be men and women of the Word. And though that challenge sounds so great, and I'll help you with it just here in a minute, you know what discouraged me the most as a pastor, and I just have to live with this, is that study after study, cultural indicator after cultural indicator shows that each generation for the last one, two hundred years is getting more and more biblically illiterate. And we're talking about people who have grown up in the church. In other words, we're losing our sense of Bible knowledge and of understanding this book. And what a great challenge this is to you and I. There was a groundbreaking study done about 10 years ago of students that were going into Wheaton College. Wheaton College is arguably one of the premier Christian colleges in the nation today. And so they did a study of all these kids who've been raised in Christian homes, gone to Christian schools, gone to Christian churches, and they did a study on how their biblical knowledge was going into Wheaton College. And the results were devastating, if not discouraging. One, one out of three people couldn't identify Matthew as one of the 12 apostles. One out of the three people couldn't identify Abraham from the book of Genesis. And on and on it went. I mean, we're talking really simple stuff that you might see on a Jay Leno show when he's making fun of the fact that people don't know the Bible. And I sit there and go, but these are church kids. These are kids who are going into one of the premier Christian colleges in the United States, and they don't know the Bible. Now, we hope that Wheaton might teach them to to them. But, But what's our job? Our job is to teach them to them. But get this, if the parents don't know this book, then pity the kids, amen? I mean, if we don't know it, then our kids are in trouble. And that's my job with you, is to help spur you on in knowing this book. And so here's the deal. You and I live in a culture today, and this is the great hope of it all, that has so many resources for you to understand the Bible, it's not funny. I mean, if you and I were born 500 years ago, right before the Reformation, when there was no printing press, when most people didn't have Bibles, when there was no electricity, when there was no internet, I mean, you know, it'd be really hard to know the Bible, yet they did back then, but it was much tougher. Give me a click here, guys. Look at all the resources we have today. You can read and study the Bible on your own. In other words, almost every one of you have access to a Bible, if not you have one already yourself. Somebody came up to me after the last service, said, I don't have a Bible. I said, I'll get you one. Today, right now, Pat, get her a Bible. And, and we get somebody a Bible. Why? Because we've got tons of them around here. If you want one today, we'll give you one. And, and so, no excuse for you not to have a Bible. And you can read it on your own. As I said, just asking yourself, what does this mean? What does it say? You'll get something out of it. You can join a Bible study. Our church has hundreds of Bible studies. Schrader's church has hundreds of Bible studies. CCV has hundreds of Bible studies. I mean, we are blessed with lots of churches in this town with lots of Bible studies. You can get sermons on CD, audio, DVD, the Internet. I mean, all over the place, good and rich Bible teaching. David Jeremiah, Erwin Lutzer, Joseph Stoll, Daryl Delhousse. I mean, the list is endless of people that you can listen to day in and day out. You can get the Bible on CD and tape. Some of you say, I don't like to read. Well, then get it on CD and listen to it while driving down the road. Did you know there's over half a million books printed or published every year 
Christian books here in this nation, half a million, many of them explaining the Bible. So you've got lots of books to help you understand the Bible. Are you starting to get the picture? Like we've got no excuse when it comes to not knowing this book. We've got no excuse when it comes to not walking wisely. And the encouragement is that each and every one of us can do this. Jesus is the primary way that God speaks to us. So, so make sure he's the door people walk through. And then this book is the primary way that we know truth from untruth. And so know it and rightly divide it through a literal, historical, grammatical approach. Two time-tested doors that have very much allowed followers of Christ to walk wisely in whatever culture they found themselves in. And you can too. And we're completely out of time this morning. And so as usual, I've prepared way too much food, but that's a good problem. I had two other doors I want to share with you, but we don't have time to get to them next week. So I'll give you the fill-ins, because there's lots of other doors the Bible shares. I'll give you the fill-ins, because some of you will have mild anxiety for the rest of the day if you don't get to fill out your outline. I'm right. I'm right about that, too. I get that. So here's the blanks. Give me a click here, guys. Here's an additional door. If we, uh, are we kept focused on first things first? Uh, Wayne Grudem talks about this. Are we kept focused on first things first? In other words, Jesus' two great commandments are to love God and to love others. And so is what are what you being taught focusing you on God and focusing you on loving others? Is it focusing you on first things first? That, that's a door to consider. And then another door to consider, give me another click here, guys. Give me, yeah, is are we directed toward righteousness? In other words, any truth that comes from God should direct you toward righteousness, not unrighteousness. It should create in you an obedience to God. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in time we will reap if we do not grow weary. And so those are just two other doors to consider, again, that I wanted to have time to go to, but we don't have time this morning. But the two main doors that John hit are exactly what I think will get us going here. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and for your truth to us. It's uh, life-giving to my soul. And Father, as I've said quite often, I would be absolutely lost without your word. Lord, I would just get up here and I'd be like so many others in our culture today, just giving my opinion about who you are that would be worthwhile, one person's opinion. And yet, Lord, I don't have to do that. I, I get the privilege, Lord, of studying your word throughout the week and standing up here and, and communicating to these folks what I believe is a right interpretation of it. And yet, Lord, as we learn today, their job then is to be Bereans, as the book of Acts says, who search the scriptures to see if what Paul, or in this case, Jamie, is saying is true. So, Lord, help each of us to be this way. Help each of us, Lord, to use these two doors in discerning truth, to discern whether somebody has a right view of Jesus or not as the incarnation of God, and then, Lord, also to discern if what they're saying really meets the biblical standard or not. And, Father, as we do these two things, keep us centered on you, keep us focused, keep us wise, we pray. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen.